Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a corporate communications poll says 60% of Ontarians believe that the Ford government is corrupt. Members of Parliament are warning about the high-stress and high-stakes environment of Parliament and politics. And Donald Trump went on another Twitter tirade, this time targeting Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A corporate communications poll now says that 60% of those who were polled believe that the Ford government is corrupt. And only 10% of respondents think the departure of uh, former Chief of Staff Dean French is going to undo any of that damage. Uh, These are dark days uh, for the popularity of this government, especially for Rob Ford himself, or Doug Ford himself, sorry. And uh, it seems to be getting worse instead of getting better, even with the cabinet shuffle that occurred a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Richard Brennan joins us, uh, covered Queen's Park, of course, for many, many years uh, for the Toronto Star, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Badger, how are you doing today? Good, Bill. Uh, let me, right up front, let me ask you something. There's no election for another three years or so, but does, do, do numbers like this bother politicians, or does it just roll off their back? Well, I think I think it's a bridge too far. 60% saying that the Ford government is, you know, corrupt because of uh, cronyism. Bill, they all do it. Mm-hmm. This is not... This is not something that's unique to the Conservative Party. They've all done it. The NDP, when the NDP was in power under Bob Ray, if you were, you know, involved in the labor movement and that, if you wanted a job, boy, you was almost guaranteed. Uh, and the same with the Liberals. They all appoint people that are like-minded. I mean, some of these, I agree that some of these uh, appointments, uh, Ford, Ford Major, I guess, uh, French made Dean French, his uh, former chief of staff, may were a bit. Uh, oh, I would you would look askance at it without question. But to suggest that a party is corrupt because they they appoint people of like-minded people to different positions, I, I think it, that's just gone too far. Well, it it goes to the idea of that we've talked about in the past about polling. I mean, the, the way the question is framed oftentimes uh, almost predetermines what the answer is going to be. It's a, it's a pretty strong word, but I can understand how people are upset about what they're seeing. And, and, and you're absolutely right, I mean, because we see this in every government. Oh, but well, the, can, But there's a couple of qualifying... But, but yeah, and, there are a couple of... But we know sometimes it becomes blatantly clear that, uh, that there's favoritism going on. And that, that goes above and beyond putting your people in charge. Well, let's just go back a ways here. With when Kathleen Wynne was in power, she appointed Monique Smith, a former MPP or Liberal MPP from Nipissing, former cabinet minister. She didn't uh, didn't run, and guess what? She was appointed to Washington mm-hmm. for Ontario. What qualifications did she have? I mean, that was completely partisan and, and, and cronyism, if you will. And certainly the conservatives at the time, uh, Monty, uh, I think his last name here, anyway, they, they condemned it and said it was outrageous. Well, it was, it was outrageous, and just as some of the appointments Ford would, uh, had, had made, it was outrageous. <laughs> but it's done, not saying it's right, but I'm saying it has been done by every party. And this, you know, phony outrage, political outrage, it, it, it's a bit much for me, quite frankly. But does it make a difference, though, the fact that he made this a campaign issue and said he was not going to do this? That he he looked does. at what yeah. at what yeah. Kathleen Wynne was doing, and and Dalton McGuinty, and you go right down the list. You're absolutely right. I mean, just about everybody. Well, they all do it in one, some way, shape, or form. But when he gets up there and says, "I'm going to," well, he I think he probably even used the phrase "drain the swamp." I mean, get rid of all the cronyism. We're not going to do that. It's going to be an open government, etc. Uh, and I understand people getting frustrated because they heard that, and I guess some of them even bought that and said, "Well, maybe we're going to give this guy a shot then because we're pretty upset with the Wynne government." And it's the same old thing, once and more. And it's uh, it's the old thing about fool me once, shame on me. Sh- fool oh, me. I know. You know. 
but hoisted on his own petard. That's yeah. what I would say in this case. If you trouble is that they think people have. I know people have short memories. Voters have short memories. But when you come in, just as you cited, saying that you're going to do things differently and, you know, you're going to make sure that, you know, the, the old ways are gone, and then you just do exactly what you said you wouldn't do. And that that hurts more than anything. I don't think it's so much a cronyism is that you're not living up to your promise that you would be different. And that's got to that's stick with some people. Because they're, let's face it, for him to get elected... Uh, there were a lot of people that probably traditionally did not vote for progressive conservatives that did this last election, figuring, okay, let's give this guy a shot. Oh, oh absolutely they did. I mean, they just were, they were fed up with when, and, and they didn't want to give the NDP the reins. So, yeah, there are people that probably, there's a lot of people that have never voted conservative before in their lives. They said, you know, enough's enough, we need something different. And they were looking for something different. And what they're getting is not different in any way, but uh, it isn't what I'd say the the pollster said here is corrupt. I just think that's way too far. Well, and again, I, I don't know this agency at all, uh, Corbett Communications. Uh, John Corbett is the uh, the gentleman that runs us. He's the pollster. Uh, and uh, and again, I don't know even the questions that were asked, but I mean, that's, the words like that were used. They talked about uh, whether or not his leadership is sustainable. Um, I mean, that's something the PCs are going to determine themselves. Uh, I would think in the long term, because of the short memories that you've already alluded to that most voters seem to have, uh, if, if this maintains itself over the next couple of years, yeah, they're going to be in trouble. That, that's pretty obvious. But there's no recall in this province. I mean, this guy's going to govern for the next three years. Uh, I would think that these low polling numbers and low uh, approval numbers are more of a, a concern right now to Andrew Scheer than they are to, to, to the Ford government. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I, I think in that uh, in a similar poll or uh, in June, the same pollster found that uh, you know found that fifty percent of those polled um, say the policies that the Ford government is going to make it tough for Andrew Scheer. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, for the, in the immediate, that's the biggest concern for the conservatives. And, and that's that his, his poor uh, positioning in the polls these days, I'm referring to Ford, are going to, and, his, and people's outrage over some of the policies, are going to hurt Scheer. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that's, a, that's going to do it quite frankly. Well, we've seen that reflected, haven't we, in the national polling that's uh, come out in the last couple of weeks where the Liberals have not just increased. I mean, in some polls, they're actually ahead now. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a lot of people that are, believe me, who are fed up with Trudeau. But it, again, you know, they they might hold their nose and and, and vote uh, vote for him again because they just don't like, uh, don't like sheer or the fact that he's aligned himself so closely with uh, Ford. But, and then and the, end, the crazy thing about this, and you've written about this over the years too, uh, when when voters are angry, they just lash out uh, oh. at anybody who's who's around. Uh, the next, you know, politician or would-be politician that knocks on their door, but especially governing parties. If they're ticked off at, uh, at for instance, at, at, at Ford right now in the Ford administration, I'm sure a lot of people in Ontario really are, I don't know if they go to the extent of saying that he's corrupt, but, you know, they're a little tarnished. His brand is tarnished, let me put it that way. Yeah. Uh, if you're a conservative candidate knocking on doors uh, for this coming federal election, uh, you know, after Labor Day, you're going to get an earful from some of those people. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no question about that. I just think this is, this is a very volatile time, Ellen. You know that. You've experienced it. It, it's a volatile time. People are tired. They're fed up with politics, the same old politics, and they're looking for something different. What I'm not sure what they know exactly what they want, and this is going. You know, it'll be, it'll certainly be reflected in this next provincial election, and certainly this this fall in the federal election. And you know, just wait. I think the Greens are going to do a lot better than uh, people think. 
Well, and your point's well taken because uh, if you read a little further down into this poll that uh, was done by Corbett Communications, uh, they also talk about declining uh, popularity and approval numbers for Andrea Horvath, who's the opposition leader, of course, in the Ontario legislature. So as angry as they might be at the Ford government right now, they're not giving anybody else any credit for it here in Ontario. They, it's, uh, I think the attitude for voters here is a pox on all their houses. Well, Andrea... I quite like Andrea. She's been around. I just think Andrea stayed too long at the party. And that's the problem with the NDP. And it's certainly being reflected in, in this poll. They, if they'd had some new blood, I really believe that they would be doing a lot better than they are now. And federally... I, I think I think the uh, NDP have, are, are all but vanished, quite frankly, and that's going to hurt. That's going to certainly hurt the uh, the uh, Conservatives' chance because the NDP, as you know, and y'all, a lot of the you know the listeners know, they're not going to vote for, for Conservative, but they will hold their nose and vote Liberal. Well, this, I'll tell you, this is a very, very interesting time in politics. It's just. It, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet that the Liberals are going to win, but I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say they're not. And that's just how crazy things are these days. Because I know there's a lot of people that can't stand Trudeau, but there's a good chance that he's going to get back in because the way the cards are falling. Well, and you've seen this happen in the past. Uh, you know, in past elections, federal and provincial, where of. An unpopular leader still gets reelected because the party actually outpolls the leader, and that's it's it's not something that happens all the time, but it has happened in the past where they simply said, "Yeah, but the alternative is just not there." So, so we've got to pretty much stick with what we got here. And I, I don't know what's going to happen in October either. I mean, let's face it: this time in the last election, nobody thought that uh, that uh, Trudeau Liberals were going to do anything. They were in third place at the time, and we mm-hmm. saw how that ended up. Uh, and, and we could be talking about six, eight months from now about how popular the Ford government's become again. I mean, I don't know, but I just know that they haven't seemed to have done anything right now uh, to curry the favor of, of the voting public. Uh, they, were, they were skeptical, I think, to begin with. Uh, there's been a lot of news, whether it's the Taverner thing, whether it's the Dean French thing, uh, whether it's some of the internal problems that we keep hearing about that everybody denies. Uh, after a while, people just say, look, it, I'm not so sh- sold on this government anymore. Uh, the cabinet shuffle was supposed to help. It apparently hasn't done that. I guess these no, guys. Are, well, according to the polls, it hasn't uh, yeah. done a lick. And, and and he's brought some talented people in, and I think put some talented people in, in key positions there too. But uh, we're, the the public's not buying it, and and they've got to be asking themselves right now, what else do we have to do here to try to get back in the good books of the voters? Well, again, they they suggest they've been in power just over a year. They have ample time to regroup. And right now, the focus is going to be taken off, which is good for them. The focus will be taken off then with the federal election, mm-hmm. and and the fact that the house isn't coming back until after the after the federal election. Week, I think it's the week after. Yeah. Yeah. So they're basically going to benefit from being out of the limelight, and that and that is a positive for them. This this uh, this break gives them opportunity to regroup. And, and try and find their ground again if, if they had ground to begin with. But this is, oh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, their polling numbers are just in the ditch. But again, it's early days. And, and we'll see. And I, I'm, there's, you know, there's some really smart people in the, you know, in that uh, Ford government who will certainly be working overtime to try and find their way out of this this quagmire. Well, uh, there's usually a honeymoon period after an election, and this one lasted a few weeks, I guess, and that was about it. And uh, you're right. I mean, once you see a trend like this, it's pretty difficult to turn the ship around. But uh, uh, if he stays quiet, and, and I don't know if it's in his personality to do that, but if he stays quiet, uh, there may be some leveling off on this just by the fact that he's not on the front page of the newspapers or the lead story in the radio anymore. Well, that's it. You... you you know, but with this cronyism business, this is a death by a thousand cuts. Okay, you know, we've seen a number of people caught up in this, well, I'll call it, I won't call it a scandal because I don't think it's a scandal, but certainly uh, this controversy. This is 
this is going to keep spilling out. We're, you know, well, who's going to quit next week? And who's going to quit the next, the week after that, and so on and so forth. So it is death by a thousand cuts. So that's that's the only thing that they have to worry about right now is this this constant emphasis and, and spotlight on cronyism and who is who's the next person that's going to be uh, hurt by it. And the other element, I only got about a minute left here, is if the public's buying this and it is starting to enrage them, you've got to know that they're going to be looking under every rock to try to find another one of these appointments that they can make a big deal about. Oh, oh there's more to come. There's no question about that. Richard, I will always uh, appreciate the insight, and uh, we'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead. But uh, it's a dark day for these guys right now. But as you say, it's three years until the next election. Okay, Bill. Appreciate talking with you. Richard Brennan, Thanks. of course, a uh, longtime journalist with the uh, Toronto Star, covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some members of Parliament are warning about the high-stress and high-stakes environment of Parliament and politics. As a matter of fact, a couple of them are now saying that the stress, along with the workload and long hours, are deadly. Somebody could actually die on the job because of this. It's an insight that a lot of us probably are not aware of. Is it overstated, or is there really something going on here that we need to talk about? Uh, Bob Bertina is a member of Parliament, of course, for Hamilton East Stony Creek. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us his perspective on this. Bob, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity. Bob, the story, uh, actually, we've heard this from some other MPs, uh, about anecdotally about stuff like the long voting sessions, and we'll get into that in a couple of seconds. But uh, the story today from the Canadian press uh, surrounds the comments of uh, uh, Kevin Lamoureux, who, of course, as you know, is the deputy House leader for uh, the Liberal Party and the Trudeau government right now. Uh, And there are others that have made similar statements as well. Uh, is is there something to this? Is this a, a a big deal with members of parliament about what goes on there, the workload and, and the everyday life? Yes, absolutely. Um, we uh, occupational health, workplace safety, nothing applies to us as uh, MPs. Uh, you know, in terms of hours of working, this the standard day for me, for instance, in Ottawa is eight a.m. to eight p.m. That's you know you're going to do that, and it could be more often there are meetings that begin as early as 7 o'clock, and there are other uh, issues that uh, take you uh, on to midnight. So it's a lot of time. Then you have the marathon sessions, which are brutal. But you may recall, Bill, uh, in our time on council together, some very late-night meetings, and this was a problem that we started to talk about in terms of when the meeting should start, because the Toronto City Council starts at uh, 9.30 in the morning, and I yeah. think they go for a couple of days. So it's unfair to everybody, just in the municipal level, to uh, begin uh, council meetings at the end of the, t- of the day, right? The council meeting should start really at 9.30, so if there is a very long uh, meeting, which you will recall doing... Oh, yeah, we've done a few uh, of them. Yeah, they don't need to go to one in the morning. They they could maybe go to you know eight or nine or something like that. So that's just the municipal level. So I, I'm just reminding you that you did some of those <laughs> too. But in our term, uh, the the longest one was the 31 hour session. I got up Wednesday morning at seven o'clock, went to work, did committee work, uh, question period, all of that. Uh, and then the marathon vote was called for, I think, either 6.30 or 10 o'clock. It was later in the day that it actually started. And so that went on all uh, through Wednesday night, all through Thursday. And I uh, left the Parliament buildings at 1 o'clock Friday afternoon. And in that time from Wednesday to Friday, I had three 45-minute naps. That's not good for you. Uh, and I'm one of the oldest guys, too, and I, I have to say, Bill, I have a tolerance for it because <laughs> I remember when I ran the Boston Marathon in 1991, we drove home after the marathon. I got into the parking lot at CHML at about uh, 2 or 3 in the morning and did the morning show. Yes, I recall that. <laughs> it was crazy. I almost bumped into you in the parking lot. I, you, you were on, I was doing the afternoon show at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I interviewed you. you. I think you were sitting in the tub because you just finished. You just got back to your hotel room. And I, I didn't know you were going to get back in the car and drive home that night. And I was surprised to hear you on the air the next day. Well, I was so excited about the whole thing. I mean, the Boston Marathon. So uh, so that kept me going. But but it's just 
everybody's different. And there are lots of, as I say, I'm one of the older guys. There are a lot of younger guys who I see nodding off or they just can't stay up. Uh, and then there are other people who have a definite look on their face as that they're in physical uh, pain. So I can recall the deputy whip, Linda LaPointe, who's a wonderful uh, lady, uh, sometime very early in the morning, coming up to me and looking me straight in the eye and saying, are you okay? you want to take another break? So she was trying to determine whether I was like faking, uh, you know, like winning, taking one for the Gipper kind of thing. I said, no, I'm fine, Linda. Keep going. She said, okay. But I noticed she kept glancing at me. But it is, it is horrendous on the body. The other thing that uh, you may, uh, this issue of whether we should work Fridays or not, uh, which gives us more time to spend in our, in our writings, one of the Western MPs told me, and she's leaving uh, this year now after her term, that for the Western people, it's time zones. She spends the whole week in the Eastern time zone, goes back to the Vancouver area uh, on you know three hours difference, and goes to all of the events because we all have you know wall-to-wall events on Saturday, Sunday, and then get a flight, then come back, and the time zone changes again. That. Uh, the decisions that we make, which are very stressful and controversial, and some people are angry about it. And uh, Tony Clement also mentioned the online harassment. Yeah, I, I want to get to that in a second, but just Good. let me let me de- get yeah. a. There's another question I wanted to ask about the marathon sessions because yeah. uh, that seemed to be the crux of, of uh, a lot of Mr. Lamoureux's concerns. Uh, as a matter of fact, he even suggested that. Uh, where's the quote here? Uh, others have resorted to wearing diapers to help them get them through <laughs> the night. Really. I mean, you, you can't take a washroom break? Yes, you can. Um, that, there, that, there may be people who have uh, other issues because sometimes, you know, those things may be uncontrollable. But, yeah, we, there, are, there are breaks organized. We actually partition off in about three or four sections. Okay, it's your turn to break, your turn to break. It's so sad, though. You have to, there's a card that we pick up and then hang, hang the card up back when we go to the washroom. You've got to kind of take the card and wave it at the whip so that he knows you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> that's like putting your hand up in class, isn't it? Uh, I'm sorry, but that's exactly. But but the, I want to get to the intent of, of these sessions anyway, Bob, because they don't happen all the time. But invariably, and I'm not trying to spark, you know throw the, point the finger at the, at the conservatives particularly here, yeah. but it's no, usually it, this is usually caused by the opposition party, is it not? Yeah, uh, totally. the the they want to have their say. Uh, you know, when, instead of you as a government, or it could be you know, it could be the Harper government. I mean, when the roles were reversed, they want to move this legislation through before the end of the session. And the opposition parties, they want to go on the record and have their say about their opposition to it. And and invariably, that's what makes these things as long as they are. Yes, it is, and I don't see the point in it because we're not going to give up. Part of the whole thing is a is a rah rah that, hey, we're not going to give up, you know, make lots of noise and uh, be look happy, you know, don't let them think that they're wearing us down as we go through this 30-hour session. So that's sort of sophomoric nonsense. Well, it is place. because there's really no point to it because as no. uh, whoever the government is, in this case it's, it's the liberals, obviously, it was the Harper government yeah. before this, the conservative government, they've got a majority. They're, the bill's going to pass. Uh, they're not going to amend anything to it because they don't want to, and there's no need for them to, and there's no reason why they should. So this is really just hollow rhetoric that's going on there, just so such and such an MP can get his, his quote enhanced and quote uh, go back and say, hey, see, I stood up for you guys. Uh, well, hollow, hollow rhetoric is the exact defining point on this. It's the same as question period. Question period is not to ask questions of the government. It's to make statements that the media or your... Um, your uh, writing associates, you, you get the clip that you play on your uh, Facebook kind of thing. It's got nothing to do with advancing the interests of the country, and it's terrible. And, and of course, that does give the media, and I'm not saying the media is awful, but they've got a comment on it, so they get comment. And, for instance, the S, it was SNC-Lavalin, you know, things about that. So it, it enabled the opposition to keep that story alive by dragging the whole thing out. And it, once again, not advancing the best interest of the country. But, I mean, some of these, and, and you mentioned Tony Clement. He's one of the people that's quoted in this story, and, and he's made some comments about this in the past as well, uh, about uh, about the stress that's on MPs while they're in Ottawa during sessions. 
my first suggestion would be behave yourselves. I mean, you're the, the architects of your own d- misfortune by doing this. I mean, they're the ones that act up in, in question period. They're the ones that spark all these marathon sessions. If you want a better way, then it starts with each individual, but they don't seem to want to do that. They all have to play the game. Well, the game includes the most embarrassing thing that I saw in my four years is the budget speech by Bill Morneau, which was accompanied by endless banging, yelling, and clapping for the whole speech. You recall that. There was no give and take. There was no listening. It was just an intrusion to humiliate, which they didn't manage to do. But uh, the the finance minister is saying, oh, your budget's a piece of garbage. We're not even listening to it. That's terrible. <laughs> that's the business of the country. So it's a game that's being played. By the way, there's one thing you might be interested in, Bill, which was uh, uh, proposals that we all sit in different places. I don't know if you came across that story. I just saw it the other day. But uh, in other uh, parliaments, it's not uh, one uh, government on the one side, opposition on the other side. If we were all mingled, let's say, totally alphabetically, from whether you're conservative, NDP, whatever, and you sat in rows alphabetically, you would be sitting next to, in many cases, uh, an opposition. So would this uh, uprising, rising of anger be, would you be able to do that when you're sitting right next to the person that ostensibly you're screaming at? That's an interesting, I'm going to give that some thought, but there, there's got to be some answers to uh, parliamentary behavior and decorum. Well, I also would suggest, and I've used this example in the past too, uh, since we are really just a model after the, the British Parliament, uh, have, the House of Commons should be the same way. They don't have desks over there. You, you sit on benches, uh, so you don't, you know, you've, you've got to pay attention because there's not much else for you to do. Uh, but it's all about decorum, and that, that's part of the problem, which leads us into what you were just talking about a second ago, uh, about some of the other stresses. And, and I know that we've talked about this uh, many, many times. Anybody who's in elected office, uh, you know, the criticism, the constant criticism, which, of course, has been magnified now because of social media, that anybody who's anybody now who has a Twitter account or a Facebook account uh, can, can ram, uh, would say pretty much whatever they want about elected officials. Uh, but you know that going in. I mean, that's 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 the game you signed up for, isn't it? Yes, unfortunately it is, uh, Bill. Uh, I have an advantage in my time and place in life because when I compare myself to some of the younger MPs, you know, it's quite a decision, as you know, to take a role in public life, to stand for election and so on, because a lot of these people have real jobs, you know, they're lawyers or factory workers or, or whatever they are, so they're going to step aside. Now, they, uh, they're they out of their job, they're into the new job. Let's say they're successful and they've won. Well, they've only done one term, they've got another election coming, now the decision is, what do I do? Do I run again? I'm farther away, I've lost all the contacts, if, you know, my legal, if, if they're a lawyer, as an example, uh, or whatever. So, and then you've got children, and you're not seeing those kids because you're in Ottawa all week, and, you know, you may be in Alberta, Saskatchewan, whatever. So these are all pressures that the average person doesn't understand. And when you put on top of that, somebody wrote in a, uh, in a, uh, a social media site, that you said you called somebody, uh, you know, which has happened to me recently, is totally untrue. You you can't even defend yourself. You just got to sit there and take it. But as I say, uh, I'm in a different different position from them because I, I I'm going to run again. I could win. I might lose. Uh, but that's not affecting my behavior. But they've got to consider all of these things at in the younger, you know, uh, very. Um, important stages of your life if you're in your 30s and your 40s that's when you're uh building your um your position in whatever your line of work is and so you step away from that go into public life it's it's onerous well and and you've got some background i guess which would help you to get through that too i mean you know you did talk radio for many many years and of course you were at city council before you got up to the federal thing so uh you're used to people yelling at you and and yeah. people disagreeing with you and i i understand that can be pretty difficult yeah. for people that that aren't used to that sort of thing yes. but but you know to to make that decision i'm sure that that's all part of the discussion uh and for an mp to say well you know gee i i, I and tony clement of all people god bless tony uh, he brought a lot of that on himself by some of the, his own actions. 
He did, but I think what he was kind of getting at was the stresses. Um, it's a very strange life. I mean, we all have friends uh, uh, within the party, our own group, and the other side. I've got many conservative friends. Harold Albrecht's a good example from uh, Kitchener Conservative there. Um, but you're still very lonely. And almost all of the bigger restaurants can easily sit one. You know, no problem. You know, there's a, they've got the, the way the tables are set up. And the reason for that is there's 338 guys any or and, and gals, the men and women, any one of whom will be eating alone that night. So that, um, let's say you're trying to get through something. In my case, it was a private member's bill. Nobody's paying any attention. Finally, they did. I got it through. Uh, you don't want to make yourself obnoxious and, you know, jump in people's faces, especially cabinet ministers or the prime minister. You kind of have to wait your turn. It's it's very nerve-wracking. So as much so, it's probably the easiest job is to be the third party because there are fewer of you. There's no You're not going to change of the outcome of a vote. Uh, you can come and go as you please, and I've noticed that with, with some. Some are tenacious in being there all the time. Others, not so much. Of course, as uh, the governing party, the whips demand that, that we're in sight. So it's, it's different for uh, different people in, in different parties. But you've heard this criticism. Every time we get a story like this, and, and these sorts of stories, Bob, pop up every, every few months, I guess, usually at the end of a session, uh, the response we hear an awful lot, and I'm sure you do too, is, look, for heaven's sakes, you guys are well paid. You get a very good salary, uh, nice lucrative expense accounts. Uh, you qualify if you you know there for six years. One of the most uh, lucrative pension plans in the country. You guys got nothing to complain about. How do you respond to something like that? Well, it's. I remember doing a talk show years ago, uh, Bill, of when the teachers. I think there was a strike, and so people were calling up. One guy, I believe, was a truck driver. Uh, saying how these people are all useless and they, you know, they get way overpaid. I said, "You sitting in your truck?" Because he actually was calling me from his truck. Um, I said, "You go sit in a room with thirty kids, uh, some of whom have um, behavior issues." Oh no, that's no problem. I could do. It. And I'm just laughing to myself because everybody in my family's a teacher. I know the stresses they go through. I know it's a good job, well-paying. Uh, so you can multiply that on on our side as uh, as MPs because so much of what we do, the committee work, is another thing that people don't understand. I'm on the Veterans Committee. Uh, there's so many long hours and, and discussions and arguments and disagreements that go into that. And then sometimes it doesn't even amount to anything. Uh, something goes off a of paper, they change uh, the agenda, what happened to this issue we were talking about is very frustrating. So, uh, oh, poor me, and I can say, you know, just sort of reflecting on what your point was, you have to be there to understand it. And it's probably like playing football. <laughs> you know? um, I remember Angelo Mosca saying to some guy, in a, we were doing a talk show, Hey, pal, we got a uniform your size. Come on down and try out. Uh, oh, I saw anybody. that. Look at Bob. Saturday, Saturday <laughs> night at Tim Horton Field, there were, what, 23,000 people on the stands that thought they could play quarterback better than Jeremiah Masoli. There you go. So um, so it's not fair, uh, but it's, it's what we do. Uh, and you, if you can't uh, take it, then you just drop out. But I've, you know, I've had to put up with it through my, you know, as a public figure, and you have too. You've gotten much, many times criticized for t- positions you've taken. Oh yeah, yeah. And you can't really fight back. You've got a microphone, but you, you know, you, that, it's not the same. And similarly with us, whether it's council, whether it's a member of parliament, you are a target. You're a lightning rod, and of, or a lot of people are unhappy for other reasons. I was talking to a lady the other day. And she was mad at the Prime Minister. I said, why? She said, well, the Queen Elizabeth is so congested. When I, I want to go to Niagara Falls, I can't get there. Well, where does that discussion go? Because it's nothing to do with the Prime Minister. It's a provincial highway. And, well, he could do something if he wanted. So we can't even sometimes uh, defend our positions because the public is the public. And as you know, the public is always right. 
Well, I know. I, I, I've used that example. I know we got to go here. But even when I was yeah, running yeah. for city council, they won election. There was a teacher strike, and that's all I heard at the doors. You know, what are you going to do about the teacher strike? Well, I said it's a provincial issue. They don't want to hear that. They're just angry, and they're going to lash out at whoever knocks on the door. Is that is that why? I got about thirty seconds left here. Is that why, though, as you've just explained, why so many MPs are not going to run for re-election this year? It seems to be an inordinately high number this time. We had a lot of first-time MPs who were very disappointed in the way things run. Uh, I would I would say that it is an issue, and uh, I think it's a story that may even grow in the next. You may want to do another uh, topic uh, with another MP uh, in the near future because we really have to grapple with this. It's a big story. Bob, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek uh, MP Bob Bertina. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. He's in the news again for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the U.S. president yesterday went on another Twitter tirade, this time targeting Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who were uh, uh, commenting about the uh, conditions, of course, uh, of uh, some of the people that are being detained on the border. Uh, there is, as you might have expected, a lot of pushback on this, and uh, a Twitter war seems to have developed between uh, Orquez, uh, Ocasio Ocasio rather, and the president. Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Morning, Reggie. How are you doing today? Good morning. Never boring down there, is it? Never boring, especially <laughs> on a Monday. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what happened and, and, and the response they're getting. This, this started with a, a tweet that Trump put out, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was, a, it was a tweet that the Trump, or at least a, a string of tweets that the president had put out over the weekend where he was basically uh, uh, characterizing uh, these these four congresswomen in a very racially charged tone, basically telling uh, the people that pay attention to his Twitter account that these congresswomen need to go back to the countries that they came from to talk about the, the, the kind of corruption and, and bad things going on in the governments of these countries. The problem is three of the four of the congresswomen that he was tweeting about are born in America, and one of them, who was born in Somalia, Ilan Omar, uh, emigrated to the U.S. more than two decades ago and became a naturalized citizen in the year 2000. So these are, for all intents and purposes, four uh, American women that the president was targeting, telling them to go back to their own countries. Yeah, the, uh, the well, in, in part, because I know it was kind of a long term, as they usually are from Trump, uh, suggesting uh, the quote is, they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Uh, in the case of Ocasio-Cortez, that's Brooklyn, isn't it? That is Brooklyn, and, and you know, for some of them it's Michigan, and for some of them it's Minnesota. These are these are American women who, you know, the president is basically saying if he's if he's confused, he's basically trying to say that the U.S. is corrupt and the U.S. has problems. But the president, in his kind of uh, ill-informed ways, is basically trying to drum up some support within inside his base by saying, "Well, look, these are uh, not white women who are in Congress right now, and who could have storied backgrounds." And that's kind of where the president has been going for the last couple of years with his tweets. It's what his base likes to see him tweet about, and those tweets that he. Put out over the weekend now have GOP members standing behind them to say the president wasn't wrong to say this. And that's fascinating that there would be sort of reaction. I mean, you know that the, the Mitch McConnells and the Lindsey Grahams, uh, you seem to always have the president's back. But I, the question a lot of us are asking, Reggie, uh, is, is when he crosses the line like this, uh, where's the pushback? I don't even know if there is a line anymore. There, there is no line, especially when it comes to the GOP, because think back to 2015 during the race. Anytime the president made any kind of uh, ill-informed or, or racist or xenophobic comment, uh, there were people that were trying to become the president standing behind and saying, look, the president is wrong. The president, or, uh, Donald Trump, rather, is wrong. He shouldn't be saying these things. These things are inappropriate. The Donald Trump isn't fit to be the president. These are now the people who are standing behind the president because uh, they are people who are relying on the president to get themselves reelected next year or in the next couple of years. So that line no longer exists. That line, on the other hand, with the Democrats has been brushed way further back now. And no matter what the president does or says, he crosses that line for the Democrats and they go after him and they go after him hard. This is, I mean, this is basic politics and it may, it, actually baseless politics, some people might suggest. Uh, but it's no coincidence. These are, as you mentioned, Reggie, these are all women of color. Uh, I, I, some wearing Habib. And it just goes on and on. But clearly Trump seems to understand, and I guess the Lindsey Grahams and others seem to understand, that there's a receptive audience for these sorts of comments. There absolutely is. And, you know, there's there's some people out there saying that, look, the president is going after a very targeted group of people with these uh, with these tweets and these comments. And that would be the rural whites in America and the non-college educated whites in America who right now make up 30 to 35 percent of what the total vote will be. 
the president has 20 to 22 percent of that, but he needs to get as much of the support as he can by going into next year uh, in order to kind of grab that big electoral victory. And if he can drum up this kind of fear, if he can use this one about ism to kind of invoke a little bit more uh, or stoke a little bit more fear inside the, the, the people inside rural America, that's what he needs. So he's doing this as, as a strategy. This is how he gets a, a direct target in place is by going after a very narrow group of people, ignoring the fact that there is a very large and growing minority population across the United States that if the president wants to win, he is going to have to woo them in. And these kind of comments are pushing them away. But uh, and again, you have to wonder that what kind of response this is going to get. I mean, obviously, we see what's going to get from the, the GOP leaders at this stage. Uh, but the, the, the population in general, I mean, you know, the, the, for instance, these, a couple of these people are from states that are going to be pivotal. They were swing states that he won in the last election. Uh, you got to wonder what kind of reaction they're going to be in places uh, that, like Michigan, for instance, uh, where these people are residing. And these are elected officials, I mean, duly elected by the public. And he's basically insulting them, and I guess by extension, insulting the people that are voting for them. Absolutely, and we've seen this time and time again, but there's going to be a small population, a segregated population inside of each of, the, each of these states that are going to stand behind what the president says, and he's going to use those small populations to drum up further and further support by saying, well, look, if some people are paying attention to what I'm saying, they can get the message out and get that to a further population, and that's how he kind of tries to get this message out there and, and, and try how he tries to get these percentage numbers to grow is by giving it to a small number of people and then fanning the fa- uh, flames and letting it grow out a little further. That's how he won the president. It's what he's been doing for the last four years. So even if it's a pivotal state or a swing state that could make or break the election, he will still target the people that he wants to target. And there will be people in that state that still stand by what he says. Well, and in the absence of a Democratic nominee, I mean, that's not going to be determined for a long time yet. Uh, It seems as if he has pretty much uh, singled out uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as as the target of an awful lot of his criticism. She's outspoken, obviously. She's very loud, very confident in herself. Uh, and a female. All seems to be things that Trump doesn't seem to have a whole lot of time for. Uh, so she, she seems to be the natural target for his ire. Absolutely, but she's also a target for Nancy Pelosi because she stands yeah. for everything that Nancy Pelosi doesn't stand for because they are from very two different parts of a very fractured Democratic Party right now. So the president no longer has to go after Nancy Pelosi for anything when it comes to happen, uh, things happening inside Congress. He can go after the far left side, which would be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and then that puts Nancy Pelosi in a place of either having to defend somebody who's got a different uh, you know, uh, political ideology than she has within the same party, or it has to have her backing the president by saying, Saying, yes, what he says about her is correct. So going after the young and new members of Congress with a different uh, viewpoint is, is, is a very targeted way of going after Nancy Pelosi and putting her on the spot to make sure that she is kind of standing on a, on a limped leg as she leads Congress. Reggie, is, is Trump savvy enough to understand that, that what he's doing here is actually maybe driving a deeper wedge into the, the Democratic Party, especially between Cortez and, and Pelosi? Uh, he is. I mean, look, tr- the president is a showman. He understands how business works. He understands how to get somebody's attention. He did this on TV for a long time. Uh, if you give the president an opportunity to be in the spotlight, he will use it to his best advantage, not caring what happens to anybody else surrounding him, either in his party or in the opposing party. So it's what we've seen over the last couple of years. I think that the president understands what he's doing when he tweets. He knows how to get a rise out of people. And he's surrounded himself now with people who believe in what he believes in. So this is now a growing trend for the president to say, look, I don't need any of you around me. I don't need any communications people around me. I don't need any of you advisors around me. I can go after who I want and I can say who I want because as we've seen for four years now, the man is Teflon. Seemingly, uh, and at the same time, obviously, the Democratic contenders, all 22 or three of them or whatever it is now, uh, can target that. But they seem reticent to get involved uh, and actually directly go after Trump himself, uh, in, especially in the last series of debates. There's another series coming up in just a few days now, Reggie. Is there any indication that, uh, that Biden and, and Harris and the others are actually going to now turn their, their attention towards Trump himself? Well, they're going to have to band together to try and get some kind of message out there, because as we saw in the previous debate, the Democrats all on stage, they have one goal in mind, and that's to become the next president, but they don't have any com- uh, communal goals that they're trying to push together as a single party. They have a health care plan, but they all have individual ideas as to what that health care plan looks like, and only a couple of them are actually going after the president. I think what we're going to see in this debate, and as we head into the, uh, the remainder of the four debates later this year, will be a more concerted effort to go after what the president is saying while trying to kind of pivot 
give it their own messages to say, look, this is what we want to do on healthcare. This is what we want to do on immigration. This is what we want to do on infrastructure. But this is what the president hasn't done for any of these things. And if the Democrats want to get themselves to an elevated spot to potentially beat the president, they need to get all of their ideas together and then work together to beat the president because we didn't see that in the last debate. Well, there's an interesting strategy here. I mean, back in the day, they used to call the the people that abandoned, uh, well, Jimmy Carter was back in those days in the Democrats, uh, Reagan Democrats that just said, look, I don't like our guy. We're going to give this other guy a shot. And they, they voted Republican twice, actually, as it turned out. Are, are there Trump Democrats out there that can be swayed? Uh, there very well could be. I mean, there's there's a large number of people who during the last debate simply didn't like Hillary Clinton, so they voted for Donald Trump, thinking that it was going to be something new and something different, and it turns out new and different might not always be what's best for the country going forward. So we could see some Republicans either very back in towards the Democratic territory or simply uh, spoil a ballot and not cast a ballot for, uh, for the president. Uh, that, that's something to be seen as we go forward and as we start to look at polling as we head out of debates uh, through next year and as we head in towards the conventions. But right now, I think the president... Before he even tries to kind of siphon off Democrats into his party, he needs to make sure that he's not pushing away uh, Republicans to just go into Nowheresville. But when they won the uh, the midterm elections a, a year or so ago, uh, they did it essentially, Reggie, as, as you reported, uh, by staying away from the personal attacks and basically talking about policy. And, and they it seemed to work. But I'm just from what I'm hearing on the Hill over the last couple of days, uh, the temptation to just forget about policy and go after Trump seems to be almost overwhelming for many of them. And that's where we've gone over the last four months. It was a big, let's, let's prove that we can win the, the, uh, the house. Let's prove that we can get a growing number in politics. And then let's prove that we can go after the president and we can do policy at the same time. The problem was they were pushing all this policy through and it was dying in the Senate and not making its way to the White House. So they feel that they've now shown the public, look, we are able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can get work done and we don't have to go after the president. The president is now making it personal against a number of members of Congress. So they're trying to switch the page to say, look, it's time to go after the president right now. Nancy Pelosi is going to have a difficult job trying to control what's happening inside her own party as they try to nip at her heels to say, look, we tried to go the impeachment route and you told us not to go the impeachment route. We tried to work together on immigration. You passed a bill that we didn't like. We're going to go after you for that now. So the Democrats are fractured right now. They really need to pay attention to what they're doing. But I think that we're going to see stepped up attacks on the president as we go towards the next debate and as we head in towards the next election season. Trump has an amazing ability to change the channel, though, doesn't he, Reggie? I mean, uh, let's face it, I mean, that's the story at the beginning of the weekend uh, was the comments by uh, Ocasio-Cortez and the others uh, about uh, their, their trip down to the border uh, and the detention facilities down there uh, and the horrid conditions that they expressed. Uh, that was blotted out by Trump's tweets all of a sudden. And, well, as you and I are just <laughs> right now doing, uh, the, we're talking about Trump now instead of, of about the policy, about the border wars, about the wall, about the uh, the immigration problem. That's that's always all of a sudden that's back in the back burner. That's exactly what the president likes to do. That's why we're trying to figure out what was the point of these tweets that he made over the weekend. Was it to simply stoke a fire or was it to draw attention away from the fact that there were immigration raids that were supposed to take off on Sunday? The problem is this big number of deportations and arrests that were supposed to be made according to the administration failed to happen. We had barely a couple of arrests made if they were ha- if they were made at all. Parts of New York had immigration officers walk up to doors in, in, uh, the, in uh, Manhattan and in parts of uh, the Bronx, and they didn't have warrants with them, so the doors were closed in their face. So this was a potential failure on the administration's part to deal with this immigration and border crisis, and the president very well knew that was coming and tried to change the page on this. So this is what the president does. He knows how to change the topic by simply putting one tweet out there, and as we're doing right now, we focus on the tweet and not what the actual policy is. And exactly uh, because of the process. I mean, I I know an awful lot of the lawmakers, uh, and you've been reporting on this over the last couple of days, were pretty upset that the president actually made a public show of the fact that he was going to encourage these raids in order the the the, the law enforcement officials to go after these because it, it, for, when, when, for these things to be effective they've got to be a, there's a surprise element to it you don't just uh, hey I'm coming next week for you they're going to be gone and and this I, is I, going to happen for an awful lot of the the so-called raids that are supposed to occur and that's how this stuff is supposed to play out. Look, when all the things were happening during the Robert Mueller investigation, we didn't get advance warning that the FBI was going to be t- uh, going after uh, uh, Paul Manafort and raiding his house. We saw it happen as it was happening. So to give a little bit of, of kind of, you know, uh, a curtain up so we can't see what's going on, that's what makes this policy effective. To put the, uh, the information out there ahead of time, it allows for groups like the ACLU and it allows for uh, social activism groups to get involved, for churches to open up their doors, to allow for sanctuary to happen inside their, uh, inside their buildings. This is 
was something that, you know, it gave immigrant communities uh, an opportunity to kind of go and run out and hide to make sure that they weren't going to be caught up in any of these sweeps. The problem with this policy that the president is also trying to change the page on, if we have all of these deportations and raids happening, he's not just targeting people that are in the country undocumented with criminal backgrounds. He's potentially going to go after families who have been here for decades, who maybe the parents are undocumented, but their children are U.S. citizens. This could be a family uh, child separation uh, issue that we're looking at once again with these raids. Variations on the same theme, I guess, of what we started talking about just a few minutes ago. Listen, you ver- just before, well, I've got you here today, Reggie. Uh, you mentioned Mueller. Uh, his testimony is coming up, of course, to actually both committees that he's going to be appearing at. Uh, what are you hearing in Washington today? Is there anticipation about that? Well, there is. It was supposed to happen this coming Wednesday. That's now been delayed by a week. It'll be happening next Wednesday. We're still not sure if Robert Mueller is going to offer anything additional to what that report said. You know, during his last press conference, during his only press conference, he made that statement that said, look, my report is my testimony and I have nothing else to offer. So there is kind of questions as to what Democrats are going to get out of him when he's up on the Hill speaking. This could simply just be that made-for-TV moment the Democrats are looking for. It'll be anybody's guess to see what the president does the night before or the day of when the testimony happens to potentially see if he tries to derail that. Well, if and if that's the case, if he's going to stick to the script, basically, I guess, uh, even that script is damning in and of itself, isn't it? Because the talking points that Trump and, and his uh, his team are talking about, about no collusion, and, and, you know, we've heard this from Barr and from everybody else, uh, yet the first couple of pages of the report indicate that there was some, obviously some very strong evidence that there was tampering that was going on. Uh, so and just for him to actually read that onto the record, I guess, is going to contradict a lot of the stuff Trump has been saying over the last couple of weeks. Absolutely, especially when it comes to that no obstruction, because uh, Robert Mueller laid out 10 different instances where he could have potentially charged obstruction against the president of the United States. And I think Democrats are going to try and get Robert Mueller to offer up more information to what we can't see in between the lines to detail further uh, what was inside those potential 10 instances, because it then allows for those Democratic committees to go out and further their own investigations and further their own push to go after Trump. So Robert Mueller could just be potentially laying out additional uh, paths for them to follow in order to get to the end result that they're looking for. I'm just wondering how far they're going to push uh, with both uh, sessions, of course, the congressional and the Senate hearings, uh, because there are some pretty obvious questions that we've talked about over the last couple of months. Uh, Why doesn't uh, Donald Trump Jr. appear before the committee? You know, what about Jared Kushner, people of that nature? Uh, You wonder how much leeway uh, they're going to take with this situation and and how Mueller's going to respond to that. Well, I think Mueller's going to be very careful with his words because he's still a man of the law. He's been doing this. He's been in law enforcement in the FBI for decades and decades. So he understands how this game is. He knows not to lay his cards out so far out that it would be giving away vital information or potentially sour any investigations that are currently ongoing through parts of New York and into Virginia. So I think he's careful with those words. I think we'll see more pushback from the administration who's been invoking this executive privilege to stop any of the close personnel to the president from getting up and having to speak any further. But I think that this is going to be a potential big moment for the Democrats to get a little more information, but what we will see is some big grandstanding by the Republicans who simply waste the time by not asking any questions or trying to dance around topics and getting Robert Mueller to basically back what the president was doing as a positive thing as they try to potentially derail what the Democrats are asking. Yeah, we saw Barr do that at his confirmation hearing, didn't we? I mean, as you mentioned, there's only an allotted time, and he would he would actually take up some time by repeating the question, then humming and hawing, and then all of a sudden, uh, whoever was, was doing the questioning at that time was, was right out of time. Uh, it's uh, right out of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, delay 101, but that's part of the game of politics, isn't it? It absolutely isn't. Any good lawyer is going to know exactly how to keep the vital information off the table and kind of dance around the topic and make sure that you're just simply getting back what you asked in a different way. That's what the Republicans are going to try to do for the entire, uh, you know, four or five hours that we see Robert Mueller testifying next week. Reggie, it's always uh, great to get you on the program as you uh, peel back the theater and the theatrics that go on here and, and get us uh, the facts of what was going on. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. That's uh, Reggie Cicchini, of course, a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News down in Washington. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.